when I think of ghosts, it's sort of these these uh, these energies or these life forms that like still have something unsettled or unresolved and that's why they they exist still like there's something still that we haven't dealt with and that seems very much in line with this idea of like there's still like all of these like chemicals and toxins um, from our past that we're just kind of burying in the ground and not um not wanting to face. That was artist Tanya Geis. And this is part four of a four-part series curated by the research collective Erratics, a curatorial group that creates art that explores geologic phenomena and the effects of human impact on the environment. In this episode, Nina Elder of Erratics hosts a conversation about ghosts, reliquaries, and memory. It draws on humanity's handling of climate change and how that reveals our often fraught relationship to the planet. And it explores how artists are moving through this time of ecological loss by seeking reliquaries and memories in the earth itself. Nina is joined by artists Tanya Geis, Dion Lee, and Renee Rhodes. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. I just would like to start it off by everyone going around and saying their name, their preferred pronoun, their location, and any important cultural identifiers uh, that are pertinent. Um, So I'll start. My name is Nina Elder. I use both she, her, and they. Um, I am calling in from the Nanilchik village sovereign land that is called Homer, Alaska. And, um, and I guess something important culturally culturally about me is that I'm um, a visual artist, a writer, an educator, and I feel very privileged to be quite nomadic. So maybe, Renee, do you want to start us? Sure. Hello. My name is Renee Rhodes, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm living in San Francisco right now, which is a traditional home place of Ohlone peoples. I work as an arts organizer and a gardener and... An artist. Glad to be here. My name is Dion Lee. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I'm also coming from, or I guess dialing in from Ohlone territory. Um, I'm in Oakland, California, and I am an artist and educator. Thanks for having me. Hi, I am Tanya Geis. Um, I go by she, her pronouns. I am also dialing in from the ancestral territories of the Ohlone, um, but in Berkeley. And I am a visual artist. Cool. I've n- never met any of you face to face, and it's just a random coincidence that you're all Bay Area artists. So um, I'm excited for this to be the beginning of what maybe will be some future connections and friendships. Um, so Part of why the erratics formed was that we started recognizing a gestalt of 
artists and cultural producers who are thinking about um, geologic empathy and the ways that as humans in this time scale, we can have feelings and projects that can relate to larger time scales. Um, and I'm really interested in how the three of you connect to the topic of ghosts and reliquaries and memory. And I invited you all because you all have really interesting place-based practices. Um, but I think it'd be really cool if we could just start with a quick view of what you're working on and some questions that you're asking in your practice right now before we dive into the more meaty conceptual part of the conversation. Um, Dion, do you want to lead us off? Um, yeah, well, I think um, it's funny that you're using the word ghost because I was, I had, my first thought was, I don't know if I think about that, but I think I definitely um, think about, you know, like the past and like how the past is continuously present, which I guess could, you know, it's related to this idea of the, the ghost. Um, but in my work, I deal a lot with um, my relationship to landscape um, and the natural world and particularly thinking about spaces within um, the American landscape. And I really think about like how history and ancestral lineage kind of like lives in the present day through my interactions with these spaces and define how I engage with those spaces. So I work across mediums. I work in photography, collage, and video. Um, and my photographs usually end up cut up into a collage, um, which I make in the process uh, in the dark room through a silver gelatin process. Um, and yeah, I work primarily in black and white. Um, and I often, when I was talking about like history as like a, um, a present ghost or something, I really, a textone in my practice is looking to um, the history of relationship between Black Americans in this country and our relationship to land. And I really pinpoint um, the reconstruction period in America post-Civil War where formerly enslaved people were granted um, 40 acres and a mule to kind of like as, as reparation basically for um, post-slavery. But that never happened that uh, the government decided not to do that. It's a long story as to why, but, um, and I really just think about that loss and like the impact of that loss moving forward through generations and um, contributing to how groups of people relate to, to certain land landscapes. Awesome. Someone else want to jump in? Sure, I can. Yeah, a lot of my work really starts with my own body and embodiment and movement as a sort of baseline for how I explore whatever I'm exploring. And I think that lately building a kind of connection and relationship to geology and to those sorts of timescales has been, has been my question. And I do a lot of that through thinking of mimicry and sort of mimetic rituals or, or almost like games um, that can act as a way to both connect me to my place where I'm living and it's kind of long historical arcs back through geological time. 
um, and they can also act as really small, sometimes text-based offerings to others um, so that there's an invitation for others to also use their body as a sort of technology to sense and to discover a relationship with uh, place and timescales that are other than human. Um, yeah, so I also do a lot of video work that kind of elaborates on some of those themes of mimicry and thinking about geological empathy. I like writing. I usually, I feel like with the last couple projects I've made, there's been a book component and sometimes social sculptures that kind of happen in public places are part of what I do. I'm thinking a little bit more as I go here, how to, um, how to share what I'm doing beyond gallery spaces um, and to take, to take the work and to take the questions into some of the landscapes that fed the project in the first place. Okay, um, let's see. So my work generally looks, it can look very different. I've done a lot of drawing recently, um, but my practice also involves installation, um, some sculpture um, and uh, found objects and also video. Um, so it's pretty varied. Um, the projects almost always start with a specific habitat or a species that I become interested in, or even like a larger food web. Um, I end up doing a lot of research on it and spending a lot of time like with that species or with that place. And during that time, I end up collecting either like visual imagery or like actual objects or materials and those end up being transformed into um, the final artworks and the final form is very much dictated by what it is that I experience um, in the space. And so it often looks very different. Um, let's see. My work often involves a lot of um, trash or sort of detritus or things that you know are not generally considered um, that interesting that are more on the sidelines and the works often have this element of like visual seduction that get you to look at um, those spaces more with a certain interest that kind of it kind of tricks you into looking at these things in a different way um, and reconsidering their their place in a particular ecology yeah i'm also particularly interested in the ocean and coastal spaces i have a background um i've worked and i have a master's in marine and coastal management and i'm pretty interested in how the ocean is this sort of unseen space um, practically speaking you know, we end up sinking a lot of our trash or the things that we want to get rid of or don't want to think about into the ocean. Um, and there's that, you know, aspect of pollution in a very literal sense, but it's also come to 
be a sort of metaphor, metaphoric space for um, those things that we would rather not um, face, like the aspects of our life that we'd rather not face. Um, and so I'm pretty interested in that border between um, like the land and the ocean or like the air and the ocean, that membrane between the two and how you move between those two spaces. That's really interesting. And that kind of leads me into the next thing I wanted to talk about. So maybe Tanya, you can stay on and um, in thinking about these places that might haunt us or that bear evidence of haunting. I'm sitting here in Alaska where the entire landscape was formed by glaciers, but I can no longer see a glacier from where I'm sitting or where I'm from in the Western Rockies and the, you know, in Colorado and New Mexico, everything has been formed by wildfire, but it's often an invisible forming thing. Um, so yeah, Tanya, if, if you want to kick us off and just kind of talk a little bit more about those site specific energies and how you tap into them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when, you know, I spent some time like looking over these concepts before the, this, this, uh, interview and I never really thought of my work in the con in relationship to hauntings or ghosts, but yeah, it's sort of like what Dion was saying that there actually like is a lot and I'm super excited to like think about my work in those terms. Um, and one thing that came up for me was I like I've used mud a lot in my work, um, both as a medium and also as a like a sorry as like a pigment. Um, and also um, in sculptures, in ceramics, so found mud. Um, and that's been from mostly from the mud flats around the East Bay. And those sites um, historically had been the place of a lot of uh, chemical manufacturing. Um, a lot of those dirty industries used to be along the bay. And the mud is still sort of heavy with those toxins and those chemicals. Um, and so I was thinking of like the material itself is kind of holds like this ghost or this haunting um, of, you know, our past activities or our past disruptions. Um, and there's also this sense that it's some, like when I think of ghosts, it's sort of these these uh, these energies or these life forms that like still have something unsettled or unresolved and that's why they they exist still like there's something still that we haven't dealt with and that seems very much in line with this idea of like there's still like all of these like chemicals and toxins um, from our past that we're just kind of burying in the ground and not um, not wanting to face, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does to me. What about to the other two? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. <laughs> There's so much in there. And I think those kind of intertidal zones that you're talking about, Tanya, are such sort of ignored spaces, um, you know, like wetland ecologies and those sorts of edge spaces that are often industrial, at least in the Bay Area. Um, there's just a lot that's almost hidden in plain sight in some of those spaces. So it's definitely interesting to 
kind of tap into that materiality and get to know it. I find with um, a recent project that I've been working on, I kind of started with thinking about the landscape that was invisible to me, but that was kind of a key shaper of the San Franciscan Peninsula and not in sand. I think that before white settlement, San Francisco was a peninsula of sand dunes, really, from, from the western edge at the beach, through the center of the city, into what is now the Mission District, and then also even up into North Beach, there were sand dunes, kind of scrubby sand dunes. Um, and that was all kind of like flattened out and, and paved over as, you know, it's like a little hard to live in sand. <laughs> so as the city developed, there was an erasure to that natural ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I started to do a project that was kind of that idea was like going around in the back of my mind. And at the same time I was watching as my neighborhood, which is kind of in the center of San Francisco, um, geographically center, um, was just in a period of really intense redevelopment, a lot of rebuilding, a lot of construction, a lot of deconstruction. Um, and there were just constantly piles of like concrete rubble in my, in my neighborhood. Um, and I wanted to, to think a little bit more about what that concrete was and what its geological story actually was, um, instead of thinking of it as just like generic, free history-less stuff. And, you know, then the more I learned about that, the more I was right back to learning about sand because of the makeup of concrete being so primarily sand and locally mined sand, it turns out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess all that to say the like, all the invisibilities of sand and then it's kind of like remineralization into the built environment where it's um, sort of doing this hiding in plain sight thing again, um, led me to want to understand the sand cycle as it exists here in this place as a very source to see kind of journey, like from the Sierra Nevadas down through the San Joaquin River, the Sacramento River, through Central Valley, and then all the way back to this more coastal ecosystem here in the Bay Area. So yeah, I can say more about that maybe a little later on, but just to say that I think a lot of what I've been interested in in the past couple of years is starting with something that is the place, um, but that has become developed over and invisible, but that those energies, Nina, kind of as you said, site-specific energies really are infused in the feeling of the place. Um, yeah, and I guess for me, just wanting to like physicalize those in an act of knowing my place better and also in an act of remembrance. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that resonated with me and talking about the ocean as this unseen space. I also have been interested in water um, in my practice, just in terms of thinking about, um, well, how, you know, the fact that we've never been to the bottom of like our own ocean or we don't like know what's down there or fully understand that space, um, but we 
as humans tend to like project outward, like we're very interested in, you know, going to outer space or other planets. Um, and something about that desire to go out instead of in, I find really interesting just in terms of how we collectively relate to um, our home or our planet. It's so interesting just talking to artists and not having a visual point of reference um, and having this all play out in my imagination. It's really a beautiful and wonderful thing. Um, and good practice for the imagination. Um, so I guess because we all make work that's related to geology, and I really see geology as a study of conglomeration and an understanding of the palimpsests of time. Um, I'm curious how each of you are approaching time in and of itself in your work and, um, you know, where you're seeing as creative people, how you might be recreating time in your work and what you hope to be doing if time could be a um, malleable or nonlinear or um, a creative medium. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, for me and my practice, when I make collages, I often use um, found imagery along with images that I've taken. And a lot of the found images are, you know, from the from the past, they're usually just early 20th century um, images. But there's something about when I'm in the process of cutting those up and merging them with nine images, I always think of it as like a time compression, actually. Um, because a lot of the work that I make is actually, it's related to like a specific place, but visually it's kind of placeless. Like I'm never in a, um, my location isn't obvious. I don't share my locations really because for the things I'm thinking about, I could be anywhere um, on American soil and that's, that's, that's good enough. But yeah, because of that placelessness and it's like compression of time, I often think about um, how the time in which my images are collected from, how there are many things that were true then that are true now in terms of how we view um, open spaces. And I'm particularly talking about like early landscape photography um, that, you know, were very closely tied to ideas around like manifest destiny um, and um, partially, you know, tied to, to genocide of native peoples, um, particularly even thinking of Carlton Watkins images of uh, Yosemite Valley, which helped um, make Yosemite a protected land. But when he was there making photos, you know, there's these empty wide um, open spaces that appeared empty, right? But they truly weren't, but those were um, images that were then used to for the government to justify killing people and removing them from that from that land um, to then make it a quote protected space. Um, so, yeah, I just think that for just to answer your question more um, precisely, just this idea of bringing the past into the into the present day and seeing what um, connections lay there, or also what you know how those images can like represent how we got to where we are today and what kind of reflections they can offer. 
Can I ask a little bit more of a question to that, Dion? Yeah. How does understanding the past help us address the urgency of now and this moment of rapid change, social, economic, ecological? Is there any insight you can offer to that? Yeah, I mean, I think just just like point blank, like looking at the past, because I think what happens um, or what I have noticed is that collectively as a country, we have trouble like reconciling our past. Um, and I think that that shows up in our actions. And I think about it, honestly, like if we, if this country was like a singular person, right? You can think about um, all the trauma that that like person has gone through. And if you don't deal with that trauma, right? You're just kind of stuck in a, in a, in a cycle and a holding pattern that can be destructive. So I think just like, honestly, just thinking about it more is probably a good step. Obviously there's further steps that should be taken in terms of like, you know, you can think about it, but then you should be, you know, investigating or understanding your um, role or positions in, in our history um, or how they, what lineage you have um, tied to, to things. But I think just looking is like the first step and something that we just don't do collectively. I'm just thinking a little bit about, uh, Nina, your original question about um, time and using that as a, as a medium and a kind of conglomerations of time and how geology plays into that or geological thinking plays into that. And for me, I, I think over the past couple of years, I've been drawn to some object making that thinks about that in addition to thinking about that through movement and embodiment, which I think can be like a little more challenging to transmute outward to others. Um, So with a recent project, a portion of it was took the form of a kind of social sculpture that was a souvenir stand. And just thinking of that word souvenir, which truly means to remember. So I created a series of objects that would remember parts in the geological history of a sand cycle. And one of the objects that I really enjoyed making was a small cast concrete mountain, almost like a paperweight type sized thing. And the the um, concrete itself came from a concrete recycling facility in the city called Sustainable Crushing, which has just like a really excellent name. But it um, is basically a site where they're intaking construction de- debris and reprocessing that so that it is in smaller aggregate forms and can be used to re- remake new concrete without needing new sand, newly mined sand. And then what that ends up meaning is that this little mountain that I made has um, layers of time kind of embedded in it. Like most recently, it used to be skyscrapers from San Francisco. But before that, 
or or within that also was sand from bay mining that's what's often used to create um, regional concrete or regional concrete and then that sand from the bay that was mined up would also have been one day millions of years ago would have been the sierras would have been a mountain so I think about all those layers of time and how to make um, how to make that communicable to to other people and how to you know create story around that and I think this kind of like small handheld souvenir where you where you're able to hold in your hand that kind of conglomeration of time is something that has felt just like one small way to do that, I suppose. I've really enjoyed thinking about, about it in that really tactile way. And I think about it with movement and embodiment too, but sometimes, like I said, that can get so internalized. It's hard to, like I don't always know how other people are experiencing that. So yeah, making these small objects that I could distribute and give away with a story has felt like a new, kind of new train of thought for me. And thinking about time and how to share really long, really long time frames that are hard to wrap uh, my head around. Um, I guess I can follow a bit off of that, um, particularly because you know I'm also working with mud, as I mentioned before, and in the same way that Renee was talking about. Um, you know, like the concrete. And, and I have one of those little mountains. They're really great. <laughs> um, yeah, that the mud also like holds like all of these histories, um, the sort of matrix of histories within it. And like on a more metaphoric level, um, I also think of the mud as this prime material. Um, you know, I think the current understanding is that life formed in sort of the bubbling mud under the ocean. And so it's this, uh, I think of it as this very prime material where life started from. Um, and at the same time, it's, yeah, it's like all of these little pieces, um, broken down pieces from all of the multiple like complex processes of humans and non-humans um, that are going on now. And that's all sort of being integrated back into the earth in this sort of cyclical way. Um, there was another piece, there was a piece that I made called um, in 500 years, what difference will it make? And there are two parts to it, but the first part um, is a collection of just like objects that I picked up um, on the beach. And they're both like man-made, like plastics, like foam, but also non-human origin uh, sticks and blades of grass and rocks and things like that. And they're all arranged according to their sort of size and shape. Um, and I think I was struggling to like reconcile these two approaches where on the one hand, you know, we are polluting the earth with these man-made materials like plastics that take forever to disintegrate. Um, apparently it takes about 500 years. 
um, for plastics to disintegrate in the environment. Um, and we need to pay attention to that and we need to change that. But at the same time, there's also this much deeper time scale where eventually all of these things will break down into smaller particles and be, you know, absorbed back into the geologic process or the life cycle of, of organisms. Um, and trying to like hold those two realities um, at the same time was really important to me. So to be able to both like accept that or acknowledge that we are causing harm to existing life systems that are supporting us um, while at the same time sort of, you know, accepting that like accepting that this is what we have done and there's no real like turning back where we're never going to be able to remove all of this plastic from the environment. It's now become what is uh, the, the matrix of the earth. I feel like there was two phrases that came out that I just want to like go back to sustainable crushing. That's just amazing. And the question of in 500 years, what difference will it make? Um, <laughs> two very different trajectories. having this memory right now, this is totally off script, but I was in Spain and I was in a really old cathedral and there was this reliquary that had the toe of a saint in a glass case that people would make pilgrimages to come see this toe. Um, and for me, it did not speak very much of the holiness of that man, but of the time period in which they thought it was okay to take somebody's toe and put it in a glass case. Um, so where this convoluted question is going is like, as artists, and we all are thinking about how things relate to time, I'd say that's a very large unifying theme in this work. But if we're very aware that uh, transmutation and time will degrade everything we make, how are we approaching the objecthood? How are you approaching the objecthood of what you're making? And what do you think it will be doing in 500 years? Does it make a difference? Um, does it need to be archived for forever? Um, or does it matter? So yeah, are we creating those toes in glass cases? Or are we saying, yeah, I just am so curious about that sense of duration. Yeah, it's such a good question. I feel like some of the things I make, well, my background is first and foremost in in dance and so I have like I'm maybe not so precious about objects for myself um 
and I, some of the objects that I've made most recently have been like really serialized and I give them away and they're meant to sort of move through space in that way. And they are, like I was saying, like recycled concrete forms or little jars of sand, um, plants even that I'm propagating that love to grow in sandy places. So I don't know, I would love it if this little concrete mountains just got geological and eroded back into this habitat in some way and by 500 years from now that would be that would be an ideal um, way for that to live on some of the other things that i do though are like so many of the other things that i do are digital in form and who knows i mean will we even be able to watch those things in 10 years probably not without the right cable so i don't know that's a question like archiving the digital aspects of the work that I do is almost like I playfully give up before I start sort of <laughs> because it feels so daunting to try to keep up with the way that that technology progresses and changes so quickly definitely um, you know not on the slow geological time scale definitely on the accelerated uh, human scale of things um, who knows how that will live on an inaccessible hard drive, I guess, <laughs> a geology in its own right. I think for a while now, um, the physical objects that I've been making are all sort of made from material that will eventually break down or that is um, kind of organic in nature. Um, I use like pigments, um, but I make my own uh, like, watercolor bases they're made on paper i don't really use plastics so and i've also made um, on-site installations that are designed to disintegrate um, or sort of reorganize themselves um, so i think i like renee am not terribly precious about how long my pieces last and I do think a lot about the objecthood and how important that is. Um, I was also re recently, I don't know if any of you guys read this, but the, the hyperallergic article recently on the non-fungible tokens, um, where the artwork itself is just a series of like ones and zeros that's completely, um, it has no like objecthood whatsoever. And this is uh, the future of a certain strain of art making um, and of uh, buying and selling art. Uh, but even at the end that there's some acknowledgement that the like have it, the objectness of art will probably never go away. Um, I think people got scared of that, you know, with the when the photograph came came to be or when we discovered how to make photographs when we discovered how to make video and then digital video um, but there's still something about sort of like holding and like feeling an object or like being able to like touch it there's some relationship to the body um, which is really important to me and yeah i don't i don't know um I've also been thinking a lot about virtual reality recently and wondering if that will be developed 
to a point where the experience of the object can somehow really be translated. Um, yeah, I don't know. These are like scattered thoughts, but yeah, I think it's it's a really really interesting question. Yeah, that it is a good question. I mean, for me, because my work. Um, I think of photographs as objects because they are physical and especially like they, you know, exist in a physical form. Um, but especially in my own work, considering that there's like layers added and taken away through the collage process, um, I see kind of a, just from like a process point of view, like the, the relationship between making something that I'm, that there's addition and subtraction involved feels really um just like tied to um the cycle of like everything i guess of life right um or just how things live on this or exist on the on the planet um but in terms of the photograph itself i don't know i guess i really i don't know and i, I mostly was thinking about in my own practice how bad for the environment it is to make stuff in an analog dark room, which I do. And I was thinking about, you know, some of the chemicals I use in the dark room are safe to just like pour down the drain. Um, and some are not, some of them have you have taken to a special waste facility. So there is like, you know, I am thinking about the damage that I am doing through making my objects right through just like, um, trying to put a part of myself outside of myself, right. Um, but yeah, for me, that's all like really unresolved. I care about them being destructive, but other than that, I don't feel like they have their own, a life of their own once they <laughs> leave, leave my hands. So um, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think it's so valid and exciting to hear people say, I just don't know. Like, I guess I get tired of that. I love saying I don't know, actually. <laughs> Thank you, because yeah, you get so tired it. of podcasts or journalism where it makes it sound like everybody knows what they're doing all the time. And artists, scientists, so many people are starting with experimentation as the basis of of all of our actions. So to pretend we're doing it all because we know what we're doing just does not make sense to me. So I really appreciate that, Dion. Um, I know that we all engage with... Um, uh, education and pedagogy and teaching it's in some level um and i think that art in and of itself has this potential to speak to audiences and future audiences but um in one of these previous podcasts that we were recording someone brought up the idea of elegant extinction acknowledging that we are in this great extinction event um and that maybe art's role is to bring some more grace and creativity to that process. Um, but something that I see a commonality with collage and these sculptures that are made of pieces of the environment and mud and primordial material is, um, this is just gonna come out of my mouth. I'm experimenting saying this for the first time, but reciprocity with the dead or reciprocity with what once was. And I guess I would just love to hear all of you speak to that idea of relating to what came before 
And in this moment where people are talking so much about consent and exchange and reciprocity, what's your approach to that? Uh, that's a really amazing question. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it up. Um, reciprocity with the dead. And so that caught my attention. And then also this idea of like bringing some grace to um, what we're doing to the planet, whether it's, you know, extinction or um, pollution, climate change, all of that. Um, I do think a lot about that. You know, Donna Haraway's book, Staying with the Trouble. Um, I think about that phrase a lot. Um, and I think a lot of what I'm trying to do with the work that I make is getting people to stay with the trouble and presenting it in a way that uh, gives people like an access point that doesn't immediately uh, incriminate them, <laughs> um, but allows them to sort of be with the situation um, or be with the animal or whatever it is and create a sort of intimate relationship. I'm thinking sort of specifically of this one project um, called Seabird where I did a lot of watercolor drawings of um, these seabirds, SEA birds, uh, that had died during this die-off. I think it was in 2013. And um, I won't get into the details, but it definitely had to do with climate conditions and global warming that affected uh, their food source. And it was uh, many times over what um, what usually happens each year. So every year some birds do die, but this was um, exponentially more. And I sort of took these watercolors and kind of collaged them together um, and created these kind of these beings in some way, like these little godlike sort of entities. And they're quite, um, uh, I guess, beautiful for lack of a better word. They're seductive, like people liked them a lot, like looking at them. Um, it's probably the, the series that I've sold the most of, um, but they're essentially these like decaying corpses of birds. And I think in my description of that series, I do use the term like grace, like how do we bring some sort of grace to um, what it is that we've done? And by kind of like reinventing or like re-enlivening or reincarnating um, these birds were, was my way of attempting to do that. Um, and I think that also speaks in some way, sort of my desire to, there was that reciprocity with the dead, literally the dead birds and giving them like that space and that visibility. Um, and I've also done sort of similar things, but with uh, sort of drawings of uh, detritus that collects along the shore of, um, the San Francisco Bay and sort of collaging those together and sort of creating these new entities, sort of all of this trash that is, you know, in some ways like suffocating the, the like animals and plants that live there, but also creating a habitat 
Um, that area is so has so much trash that it literally like forms the uh, like it is the habitat. Um, it goes many, many meters deep. Um, yeah, so I guess that's my personal way of sort of maybe trying to give something back to the dead or like connect with um, our destruction and sit with it in some with some sort of grace. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy that question too. I think that really resonates. I'm, I'm just thinking a little bit about, yeah, that language of reciprocity with the dead and what that might mean. And I think, I think for me that it's maybe there's two parts there. One is that with some of the projects that I've done, um, well. For me, it's first a way of learning about maybe small, invisible to me, from my like human vantage point, um, deaths that I don't even quite know about. Um, like with the last project I worked on, I don't think I totally recognized that there was a sand cycle, like geologically speaking, that there's a cycle there that's similar to a carbon cycle or a water cycle. Um, and that there's there's deaths in that that are kind of rippling out and interconnected to so many other things, like the death of a sand cycle is often actually the death of a of um, river connectivity. It's a pretty big part of that. So for me, it's a process of I think learning and being really curious about. I guess smaller and smaller and more zoomed in and more intimate scales of the way humans are impacting their ecosystems um, as a sort of counter to large sort of doomsday or kind of apocalypse heavy narratives. Um, because I think for me personally, I can just relate to that smaller scale more easily. There's a more of a personal connection between my own body and um, one small part of an ecosystem. And I guess then sort of bouncing off of that is that there's this maybe other part to it that it's, well, in thinking about death or what's changing or what's falling away, it all pretty connects back to me as a human or us as humans. So I think about um, in this last project that I did, I started to be able to build connections between um, butterflies and breath and sand. And the specific form that that took was through looking at a place in the San Joaquin Delta um, called the Antioch Sand Dunes. And it's kind of like a, a habitat island where there's some species that are endemic to that place that have never lived anywhere else in the world. It's a very specific pocket of sand that housed these species, and one was called the Lang's Metal Mark Butterfly. And 
um, as the sand that used to be there got used up to fuel like a, a San Francisco building boom post the 1906 earthquake, that butterfly just didn't have any more habitat and became nearly extinct sort of simultaneously, well, years later, but in the current day, in a place in a neighborhood like Bayview in San Francisco, where there continue to be um, concrete factories into the present day. But that neighborhood is exposed to really high, high levels of particulate pollution. The asthma rates there are really high. Um, cancer rates there are really high. So there's this connection between the way these particles are moving, the way that humans are moving them, and the impact that, you know, you could, you could begin to track like human health and human liveliness by way of tracking like butterfly health and butterfly liveliness. So I guess it's all just like a long way of saying that it, um, the reciprocity with the dead idea is just really mushy and, and everyone's implicated in it. So it's just as much about memorializing maybe other species or non-human processes as it is about just like wondering at where humans will be and whether we'll be able to keep on surviving and going. Um, yeah, so I guess it's developing like a sort of kinship in that moment of, of loss, you know, that that loss, that loss and being lost is a shared predicament, despite some of us having power in it and others not, which is obviously a big, a big difference between a human and a butterfly. For me, I, that question and those responses made me reflect on just how, um, person-centric my work is or I in my work my body often appears and it's pretty much always my body um and when you brought up like relating to what came before something that I've been um like the past couple years actually was more so in 2019 before um the pandemic but I was doing a lot of research around and work around um survival skills um, like wilderness survival skills and yeah it's it's weird because well I guess I'll say specifically one piece that came to mind when you asked your question is um a piece that I made called North and it's a collage but in the center of the collage there's um a set of hands that are my hands that are um, performing this action that you would do to like map out um, the distance between stars in the sky. And the position I'm holding is a way to help you find the North Star. Um, and just thinking about like reciprocity, but I guess I, I mostly think about, um, I really was like, uh, when you the phrasing of like relating to what came before is what really stuck with me but i for that piece in particular i often talk about it in a sense of like my body being a sort of portal like an ancestral portal um because as i was like performing for my camera really just like this gesture um i had thought like oh where in my lineage 
someone have like held the same gesture as well? Um, and particularly thinking about black people leaving the South um, for the North, right? And using North Star as a guide. Um, and so when I think about relating to what came before, and again, kind of goes back into that like time compression or like the past being present, I really think about how ancestral like resilience um, exists in like our bodies, right? And all, as well as the trauma, right? Um, and in all of our bodies. Um, yeah, and then even just like this idea of the elegant extinction, like as I was doing these survivals, like learning all these survival skills, I even went to like a um, like a retreat to learn a bunch of what they called ancestral skills. Um, it was just funny to me because I was just like, man, why we should just give up? Like we should just go away. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way and I'm just like, this is like why... Um, and by we, I just mean like humans in, in general, but just um, in thinking about like reconciling, right? It's just like, it's easy to go to that space of just like, well, we're just, you know, making everything worse. But I also really on some degree believe that like, and want to, um, I believe this and I want to believe it more, but just the idea that like, no, we actually can do good, right? We can, um, undo things if we have the collective will to do so. Wow, I'm just really jamming on the combination of the words reconcile and liveliness. Like that's what we're all doing is reconciling our liveliness against this insane backdrop of the time we're living in. Um, so I just wanna thank you all, Dion, Renee, Tanya, for the amazing insights um, and I'm going to be considering all of the knowledge that you contributed for a long time. I'm really, really thankful for that. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum. This mini-series was curated and written by Erratix, a project by Nina Elder, Hannah Perrine Mode, and Tyler Ray. You can visit their work at erraticsproject.com. Music was produced by Keezy Baby. <laughs>